I would never describe myself as much of an ambitious person. I was never ambitious, really, when I was growing up. I was never the type when I was, nowadays, I look at youth kids, like seventh graders, they know exactly what career they want to be. They know exactly what field they want to be. They know not just what field, but the very specifics of what they want to do. When I went to college, I was undeclared, right? That was who I was. I was like, okay, you know, that was more common back then. I didn't really know what I wanted to do professionally. I didn't have a lot of ambition to, I got to do all these great things. Even when I was a pastor, I was never super ambitious where I got to go and start my own church. I got to go and be at a mega church or a big church or get my name out there. But I did have one ambition or aspiration when I was younger that I would say started maybe around middle school and high school. And it actually started with a very, very bad motive. I remember when I was young, my parents got divorced. I went to church for the first time in middle school. And I would go, and I was so bitter towards a very particular type of people. It's those that I saw as the privileged kids that come from godly families. I hated those kids. If you come from a godly family where your parents are very godly, you pray together, there seems like there's joy in the household, I would have hated you when I was a little kid. I was such a bitter kid. I was such a jealous kid. And oftentimes, those are the ones I was like, man, you know, I, I was never jealous of like, you know, you're rich or you have all this different stuff. I was very jealous of the fact that first, you had a mom and dad that are together. Secondly, it seems like they love each other. It seems like God is in this household. And for a long time, I would say from middle school to high school, that was a very like burdensome thing. I think I was very bitter. I was very just angry as a young kid. But at a certain point, at a certain point, and this is what I, I want to challenge you with if you're there, at a certain point, I started getting over the bitterness of that, and I started to see the privilege of, like, one day I'm going to start that. One day I'm going to start a spiritual legacy that I never got to have. One day I want to make sure my kids have that. One day I want to be the grandpa who's at the table who started that line because it had to start with someone. And so instead of seeing it as something to be bitter about, I see it as a privilege that I get to start that for my family. And that, from a young age, maybe starting in high school, became an ambition for me. I remember going to conferences with my church, my youth group in high school, and I would see parents, and sometimes I would see grandparents and parents and kids there together, and they're worshiping together. And there was a part of me that was always like, man, I want that. That's a vision for my future. That's something I want to aim for. That's something I am ambitious for. And I would say that for many years, that ambition has driven me from college to post-college to have a godly dating relationship, to build certain patterns and habits. From college on, I started to get finally a picture of what that looks like because before that, I didn't really have any godly examples where, like, amongst my generation, where I could be like, oh, those are the types of parents I want to be. But starting in college, I did have examples like that, and I made it my aim to be, one day I hope I could be a godly dad. One day I can hope I can be a godly husband. And that's something I'm still working on, and by God's grace, I know I'm growing in. It's not something where I was ever like cocky, like, i got to prove my parents wrong, or i got to prove to the world that I'm better. No, it's by God's grace that I'll do better than my parents did. It's by God's grace that I will have a family that I never got to have when I was growing up. That's something I'm very ambitious for. And we tend to think of ambition in a bad way, and that's because oftentimes ambition is tainted by selfish ambition. We know that, Philippians 2. It's mixed with pride, a mix with a glory or a desire for glory or for recognition. But there's ambitions that are commended in Scripture. They are aims, they are aspirations, things we should aspire to and aim for with all of our being. One example of this is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. If anyone aspires, or different translations call this, if anyone has this noble ambition to be an elder in the church, 
he aspires for a good work. And this phrase starts with the idea, it starts with the phrase, the saying is trustworthy. And this is one of five trustworthy statements that we see in the pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are statements that were so common in the early church. Somebody probably presented this statement to Paul. Someone mentioned it to Paul and because it was such a common phrase. And Paul here affirms it to be true. This is a faithful saying, a common phrase accepted by all. It's important. It's essential. If a man desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. That's a noble ambition to want to be a spiritual leader. There's all types of ambitions that scripture, say, scripture says that we should have. There's an ambition that says, I want to please Christ. I want to honor Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.9. An ambition that, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, says God, once he saw God's grace, once he saw God's forgiveness, he said, here I am. Send me. Use me for your glory. There's a type of ambition that wants to grow in character and faithfulness and usefulness in my everyday life, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 11. There's an ambition to reach the nations, particularly the unreached. That's a noble ambition, Romans 15, 20. Do you have an ambition to one day be a godly leader in the home? Ephesians 5, 25. These are things we should aspire to, that we should aim for. We should be ambitious. We don't use that type of language oftentimes in our circle. We should be ambitious. We should be courageous. We should be risk takers. We should want to do something great. But these are things that Scripture calls us to aim for. All Christians in some way or form are called to spiritual leadership, whether in the home or in the church. And maybe we've grown up only seeing bad examples of this, and that's why we feel like, you know, I don't want to be a leader. You know, there's, of course, the youth kid example where I want to be the president, I want to be the leader, I want to be the pastor because we want glory. But once you see what real leadership is, that sort of goes out the door. But if you're still ambitious for that, that's a noble thing. Let me give you a picture of what godly leadership can do. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2 through 4 says, The Spirit of Yahweh, Spirit of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's what I'm aiming for in my family and in my church. Because oftentimes, many of us, many of you have grown up in families where it was scorched earth, it was cursed. Your family was not a blessing. But this is what we want to aim for, that our leadership gives life and light to those that we lead. And this verse puts it into a good context. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. And I always want my kids to know, and you could test them on this, if I ask my daughter or my son, Micah or Tabby, I say, who's in charge? I say, who's in charge? They'll say, daddy. Daddy and mommy are in charge. But then I always say, who's in charge of daddy and mommy? God, the king, is in charge of daddy and mommy. Parents, use that language. Steal it. I stole it from someone else, okay? If I go up to your kid and they say, if I say, who's in charge? And they say, I'm in charge. I'm going to rebuke you, the parents. <laughs> Do not, the number one lesson, this is my tangent, okay, not in my notes. Number one lesson that young kids need to know is that they are under a greater authority. And when they're under that authority, you always point them to the authority of God where he has loaned and he delegated that authority to us. Don't be afraid to use the authority that God has given to you for their good under the greater authority of God. We need to know our place when we are leaders, when we have authority. We have a delegated authority. We're under God's leadership, and he calls us to use that authority 
for the good of those around us. And so oftentimes we see the negative consequences of failures of leadership in the church or in the home. But here in this passage, you see the benefits, the blessings of being under godly leadership that is humble and fears God. It's life-giving. Look at how a team prospers under a good coach who yields authority with care. Look at how a family prospers under godly leadership from mom and dad. Godly leadership blesses those around it. It will nourish the people around you. Do you want to be that for your family, for your church? Do you want to be a spiritual leader? And of course, yes, that could be tainted, but, but in itself, it's a noble ambition. And since it's Father's Day, let me not rebuke our dads, but let me just remind us, we've been given an awesome privilege by God to not just provide for our families, but to lead our families. It's a privilege to be an example of godliness. And the best legacy we could pass to our children is a legacy from a holy father. That's the type of legacy I want to start for my kids. I didn't have it passed to me, but I'll start it. Give your children a legacy where they want to say, I want to be like dad. Where they one day say, I want to be like dad. He was a leader. Make that an ambition of yours. Do you have an ambition to serve and build up the church and to maximize your positive influence upon others that you have on others? If you don't, why not? We shouldn't be aimless. We should be ambitious for God. Now, I'm not saying we should all jump into positions of leadership or titles. It's not about that. Not all are ready or should be leaders right away, but we should strive to have the type of character and influence to make the greatest impact. Whether you're a leader in the home or a business or in politics or sports or in a church, we all know that leadership matters. And the quality of the leadership is foundational. No organization will be healthy unless it has a healthy leadership. And generally, as a leadership goes, so goes the church or organization. That's a sobering and uncomfortable reality for me as a leader of the church. And preaching a sermon on godly leadership is honestly something I want to run away from. Because it brings out all my insecurities. But it's too important for us to not talk about when it comes to the foundation of a church. For all the leaders here, there should always be a godly fear and inadequacy. We should always feel like we're in over our heads. We're out of our depth when it comes to leadership. That's a good place to be. Otherwise, we won't depend on the grace of God to lead. I want to just share from my heart, it's, I've given up on trying to organize it too clearly or too well, but I have just... Way too many thoughts. That's my, been my struggle on this, on this series. It's just like trying to fit 20 topics into one sermon. 20 things I want to say on leadership into one sermon. But I want to share my heart and experience from the past maybe around 18 years of leadership and what I've learned from Scripture as well as from my own experience as well as from the stories of others. And let me just clarify by first talking about what is it that I mean when I say a leader? And more specifically, what is it that I mean, or what is it that Scripture is talking about when we talk about the responsibility of elders and overseers and pastors? You guys should have a clear understanding of what my job description is. What are the job, what's the job description of the elders, leaders of this church? And let me go quickly over this. This is not an exhaustive list, but some of the main duties that the Bible calls us leaders to do. Number one, teach the Word of God. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We're not just here to share our lives with each other, but to proclaim, to share, to counsel from the word of God. Number two, pray for the church, to pray for us, to pray for our members. Acts chapter 6 verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer. Notice the priority there. To prayer and the ministry of the word. Praying for the members, praying for, praying for the leaders, going through our membership list. That's what our calling is according to this verse. Number three, watch over our lives. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders. This is a verse that actually is written to members, but it actually says more about leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And as leaders, we are described as watchmen, those who are watching over the barracks, watching over the souls of our members. And one day, there should always be a godly burden there that we will have to give an account to our Lord. Number four, equip us for service. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the prophets, the uh, apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and this is where we get the idea of shepherd, uh, pastor, shepherd teacher or pastor teacher, that's one idea there, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. It's not my job to do the ministry. It's my job to equip the body to do the ministry. My job is to be a player coach, right, to like get in the game, but also to equip I'm not called to be omnicompetent. I am not all gifted. That's why God has given us the body. Number five, direct the affairs of the church. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This idea of ruling well is directing the affairs of the church. This is just sort of all-encompassing, the administration, the event planning, the 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 vision casting, leading meetings, all of that, to rule well to direct the affairs of the church. And number six, and finally, set an example for the flock. First Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 2 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, but not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And any time where I see something in our church where I feel like we're lacking, I need to look first at myself. Am I lacking in that? Am I lacking in that? There has to be some level of godliness where I could say, look at me, look at the leader, and imitate me. And if you imitate me, you'll be imitating Christ. And I think this verse in particular it's one of the main functions of leadership that I want to challenge all of us with, and that's to be a shepherd. Not all are called to teach. Not all are called to preach. Very few are. But this verse gives a good metaphor for a leader, and that's the metaphor of a shepherd. That's actually what the word pastor means. It's a shepherd. We need shepherds who will care for God's people, care for his sheep, care for his church, to love his church, to take responsibility and initiative to lead the sheep to green pastures, to lead them away from dangerous threats, to guide them in the right direction, to protect them from wolves. That's what I mean by leadership. To be a shepherd, a caring, godly, courageous, humble shepherd. We're desperately in need of that. The church overall is in need of that, and our church is in need of that. We don't need charismatic people. We need shepherds who will care for people. And point them to Christ. And for many of us, it's not really our temperament to say, I want to be a leader. We may even think that's not a godly thing to think about, that I want to lead. But I hope for all believers here, we don't just see ourselves as objects of God's love, but as instruments of that love in the lives of others. My experience is that coming primarily from an Asian American background, oftentimes Asian Americans tend to have a small view of themselves and the impact that we can have as leaders. Those who come from honor-shame backgrounds would rather just follow some charismatic leader, which is why oftentimes you see the most cults in South Korea We'd rather submit and listen rather than participate and take responsibility for others. It's easy to pass on responsibility. Maybe we're passive or we buy into this idea of professionalism where it's only the professionals, it's only the paid, trained ones, the pastors, the counselors, the leaders, uh, the elders. They're the ones that can be instruments of God's grace to help transform the lives of others, but not me. Or you've bought into the world's philosophy on leadership that says it's about gifting and charisma. You see others who are more gifted, and they seem to have very clear gifts, and you yourself are not gifted in that way, or you have different gifts, or you're just, you feel like you're not as gifted, and you think, oh, therefore, I'm not in a place where I can impact others or lead others. 
It was interesting to me for about four years when I stepped out of pastoral ministry, I worked in a Fortune 100 company, and I found myself going in, even though I had way more leadership experience, better training, and more knowledge than pretty much all of my coworkers, I constantly felt this inferiority complex. Feeling so small, like my background and training is so much less adequate than the background and training of my non-minority coworkers. And it was strange to me when I suddenly realized, after a certain point, they're all looking at me to lead and mentor them. But I had such a like, small view of myself and how God can use me, and it took me a while to find my voice with confidence and yet with humility. Yes, we're jars of clay. We're broken, we're inadequate, we're flawed people, and therefore some level of imposter syndrome should always be there. Some level of always feeling like an imposter, always feeling inadequate, always feeling like we can't live up to the title, that should always be there as a leader, and that just shows you have an ounce of humility and self-awareness. But oftentimes it stops there, and we let fear keep us from doing anything, trying anything, taking any risk, being courageous. We feel like, oftentimes this is how I am in my perfectionist sort of fearful anxiety personality, I feel like I must have full confidence before I take action. I must have full confidence. I have to analyze it like crazy, understand every part of it, then I can take action. But oftentimes it's action that leads to confidence. It's as you go in, you sort of are in over your head. It's when you make mistakes. It's when you fail. You need to have some experience from failure. Perfectionists will never be great leaders because they're not going to be growing leaders. They're always going to be driven by fear and insecurity. They won't make mistakes. They won't learn. They won't grow. Exodus 3 and 4, if you guys know the argument that Moses has with God right before God commissions him to go and be his leader... Moses' personal assessment is that, you know, I'm unable, I'm unprepared, I'm not qualified to do the things that God has called me to do. And God's response is simply, I'll go with you. And yet Moses, his bottom line says, my Lord, please send someone else. And oftentimes we can get so caught up in our inadequacy, we forget the other side of the coin that God is with us. Be strong and courageous, for I am your God. I am with you. And we could see our inadequacies, and yet we remove God from the equation. So, of course, we won't be leaders. Of course, we won't be courageous. And I hope you'll never think that I'm saying, go and be the champion that God is calling you to be. That's not how I want us to think. I'm not calling you to go and be a Daniel, a Peter, a Noah, Abraham, or a Paul, we can get so caught up in ourselves and we could try to hype ourselves up like, no, I'm going to be a champion for God. No, don't try to be like those men. Believe in the God of those men. And some of us know that God is calling us to lead in the season, whether in the home or in the church, and you have so much compassion. You have so much compassion. Our church is so gifted with compassionate, broken hearts. You're so compassionate to the suffering and struggles of others. You want so badly to see others grow. Your problem is not that you lack compassion, but it's that you lack courage. People are struggling. People are suffering. People are drifting away from Christ. The enemy is trying to take ground. We need courageous leaders who are going to run towards the war, get in the trenches, be willing to stick their head out, knowing they may get hit and still do so in love. In that sense, it's really hard to be like Jesus, full of compassion, full of courage, lion and the lamb, gentle and yet a warrior for his people, powerful and yet can submit himself to the will of another, is willing to submit his father. Most of us have strengths in one of those camps where, like lions, we tend to be more bold, more courageous, more you know, straight talkers, more honest, while others, maybe we're more like lambs, we're very gentle, we're very compassionate, very understanding, but it's oftentimes hard to find that mix, and that'll only happen when we are like Christ, where with Christ, 
in John 11, when he saw the tears of Mary, he cried with her. But when he saw Martha, he gave her truth. He's able to adjust himself to the situation. Paul himself wrote to a young Timothy who was probably a very timid and fearful leader, more of the lamb type, reminding him not to be ashamed or afraid, but rather to fan into flame the gift of God. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, 2 Timothy 1.7. And those, just real quickly, those who tend to be straight talkers, blunt, honest, oftentimes they have a hard time putting themselves in the shoes of others. They lack sympathy. They lack a heart that breaks at the suffering of others. Oftentimes they're good sin counselors. They can call out sin. They can speak the truth in love, but they're bad suffering counselors. They don't feel what you feel. Those who heart, whose heart breaks oftentimes, whose heart is very soft and breaks, oftentimes they shy away from speaking truth, from correcting, from rebuking, because they feel the pain of others so much. They are more easily enablers. They're good suffering counselors, but oftentimes bad sin counselors. All of this is to say that true leadership flows out of one main quality, humility. What do we need as leaders? What's the most important quality of a leader? Humility, humility, humility. A right view of self and a right view of God that leads to compassion and courage. Oftentimes it's our struggle, it's our pride and stubbornness that creates a block in our hearts that lacks compassion towards the flaws and suffering of others. It's also our pride and our insecurity that leads to fear of man that fails to be strong and courageous and confronts sin. But true humility is sympathetic and yet not driven by what people think, but rather what's good for the other party. Ultimately, running away from the battle that our commanding officer has called us to, that kind of cowardice is sin. It's the opposite of self-denial. It's self-preservation. It's the opposite of self-giving, self-sacrificing. Leadership is an awesome burden because it's a form of vicarious suffering. It's suffering for the sake of others. And if you don't do it, others will take the hit. If you don't take responsibility, someone else will be hurt. So often we make Christianity about what sins to avoid rather than actively doing the will of God and being courageous. Courageous leaders will take responsibility for others and will make hard decisions. And if they make a wrong choice, courageous, humble leaders will make another choice to try to fix that. Either way, we need courage to make decisions and indecisiveness is one of history's greatest leadership killers and it hurts so many families. I'm thankful that we have a lot of people that come from leadership backgrounds, and maybe at your previous church or at our church, you've gotten in the trenches of leadership, and maybe you got burned and you're recovering now. But you were courageous. You loved others. You cared enough to get hurt. You didn't try to protect yourself. You took the hit. And God will not waste that. That was not a failure. Your experience wasn't a failure. Maybe it was a necessary ending, but God was honored by your courage and sacrifice because it's so much easier to do nothing, to stay away from people, to not bind your heart to them, to keep a safe distance. It's easier to do nothing, be quiet, keep your head down, and not take responsibility for anyone. But I'm thankful for many of you who take the initiative to take responsibility for others. You're willing to bind your heart to theirs. And even if you get hurt, even though it's a burden, you choose to do that. You're a suffering servant. You know, it's a privilege to carry the burdens of others. God is honored by that because that's what Jesus did for us. He's our burden bearer. And I see so much of that in our church where people are gladly choosing to take up the burdens of others and you have suffered for Christ. You know what it means to join in the suffering of Christ, Philippians 3. That's not an abstract thing to you. 
And Christ will be near to you in it all. Don't give up. Someone needs you. They need your weakness. They need your scars. They need your limp, your suffering. They need to see you go through storms and hanging on to Christ for dear life. They need to see you suffer well and even in your suffering to care for others. They may not know it, but they will one day remember it when they are suffering, and they'll need that example one day. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Courageous leadership endures. Like parenting, it's not a quick work. It's a quiet, slow, enduring work. There's rarely going to be instant success or fruit. But we commit ourselves to the long process. We need courageous, humble leaders. And it all starts with leadership that is authentically Christian. Any leader, any servant of Christ and his people is, first of all, an ordinary Christian before we are shepherds and teachers. Leadership that is worth following is leadership that follows Jesus. And before I'm a shepherd, I'm a sheep. I need to make sure I'm being shepherded. Who's leading me? Who am I listening to? What a leader is called to be is more important than what he is called to do. The Bible constantly emphasizes a leader's character. That's character is king. Character is king more than his or her gifts. We can handle a leader that is not very gifted but has great character. They'll figure it out. But dangerous is the leader who has great gifting that outpaces their character. And in some sense, I guess I should say, we should expect more and we should expect less from our leaders. I always have this tension as a leader. I always have this tension as I read the Bible about the maturity and qualifications of leaders. But for some of us, we should expect more. You should expect character. You should expect conviction. A conviction is a belief that you're strongly convinced of. Not just beliefs we hold, but beliefs that hold us in their grip. It's not just when something is important, but it's essential to everything else. I wouldn't want to be part of a church that doesn't have high expectations of their leaders. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 make that clear that elders, overseers, deacons should be examples of what all Christians should strive after. And 1 Timothy 3, talking about overseers, but it overlaps a lot with deacons, says... The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's just a catch-all umbrella term. There should be no skeletons in the closet. The husband of one wife, meaning a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's the only one that has anything to do with skill. They have to be able to convey faithfully the truths of the gospel. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. So oftentimes, people just put recent converts into leadership. And what happens is he becomes puffed up with conceit and falls into con the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." And these are qualifications of an overseer, but they're not just leadership qualities, but Christian qualities that all Christians should strive after. Pretty much all of these qualities you can find elsewhere in the New Testament apply to all believers as qualities we should be aiming for. But leaders should have reached a certain level of maturity where they can generally say, follow my example, and where they fall short, they are repenting and growing. There is a basic level of seasoning and maturity a leader must have. And we should always be careful and slow regarding the laying on of hands or the affirming of new leaders because putting underdeveloped leaders in positions of leadership is dangerous for them and the church. Maybe you grew up in a church where a leader was just whoever was around or whoever was there the longest, whoever is willing. And for those 
situations, we need to raise the expectation of what a leader is. Others maybe need to temper their expectations as you see the flaws and inadequacies of your leadership. In the very next chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this to young Timothy, verse 15, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, or for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And right before this, he just went over all the high qualifications of leadership, but there's still going to be the obvious fact that any leader is going to fall short. But a good leader is always progressing in spiritual growth. They're always heading in the right direction. There's growth. There won't necessarily be a rival. And when Paul says this to a young Timothy, he's probably in his late 30s or 40, early 40s, this assumes there are levels that Timothy has yet to reach. And the church should be a church where you can mark the progress of your leaders, where we don't have to hide or pretend or hide my flaws or hide our flaws. We can be honest and yet keep growing. Expect leaders to make rookie mistakes even when they're not rookies. Expect leaders to disappoint. Expect leaders to be replaceable. Expect leaders to be weak and to frustrate you. But hopefully, even in their failures, they're not failing at failing. They repent. They get up. They learn. They grow. They point to Christ and they get out of the way. Paul says, who is equal to such a task in 2 Corinthians 2? The answer is no one if we really try on our own. Leadership absolutely matters, but our hope should never be in a flawed leader. We thank God that he works by the Spirit through imperfect people, but our confidence should always be in God and the gospel, not in any individual leaders. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5-7 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord signed to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, knew, he who plants nor he who waters is anything. We're not anything, but only God who gives the growth. And there's always going to be a danger of idolizing people or binding ourselves to people rather than to Jesus. For a leader, the danger is always going to be to have loyalty directed at him or her rather than to God. The Apostle Paul did all he could to avoid this. He knew he was just a jar of clay, an instrument in God's hand. There's an interesting passage where he says, I'm not going to baptize people because he didn't want people to bind themselves to him. Like, I got baptized by Paul. I'm part of Paul's crew. He didn't want people to boast in him, but rather in Christ. Remember that God uses leaders who are more broken than strong more damaged than whole, more troubled than secure. It's not their strength that God will use. It's because they lead with power because of their weakness. God chose the weak things, including us. And especially in this season, the burden of leadership constantly challenges me to take seriously the call of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says as he's leaving the church in Ephesus, he's talking to the elders here, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And leaders need to be good at watching themselves, self-examination, because anyone in leadership will have greater temptations than other believers. As leaders, we have such a potential for good and an equal potential for evil if we fall, and anyone who is in leadership that falls will have greater consequences on their followers. Alistair Begg says in regards to this passage in 1 Timothy 4, when any Christian falls into sin, he hurts others. When a Christian leader falls into sin, he hurts many others. A big tree cannot fall without lots of smaller trees falling with it. This sobering consideration explains why people should never be allowed to rush into leadership responsibilities or be pushed too quickly into them. Satan will seek to make his first and greatest attack upon leaders. More eyes are on us than others, and therefore more will be there to observe our fall. 
There's nothing more important than a leader's integrity, and if a leader's integrity is compromised, then so is the foundation of the entire church. And so I need to watch myself. We need to watch ourselves. We need to watch our inner lives, our internal lives. That's so much more important than gifts, experience, or expertise. Everything grows from the inside out, not the outside in. It starts with the condition of our hearts. We lead out of who we are more than what we do or say. Who we are on the inside informs every aspect of our leadership. And so having a high level of self-awareness without feeling self-important is key for a leader. How can we develop our inner lives, our hearts, to make sure that we're healthy, emotional, and spiritual leaders? How can we watch ourselves? The best defense against spiritual attack just starts with humility and recognizing the problem within. And this is true for all of us, but especially true for leaders. I need to be protected from myself. I need to be saved from myself. God saved me from myself and the wickedness of my own heart. The humble leader will constantly feel the need for protection and empowering and prayer. Pray for your leaders. Paul constantly says that. Pray for us. Paul says that. I need you to pray for us. We need that. Because the temptations we face are great. One of the best and most important skills any leader can have is the ability to counsel ourselves. Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And there's all types of temptations we're going to face in leadership. You know, the temptation to make ministry about me, the desire to be powerful, to steal glory, to have myself increase rather than Jesus increase. Every day it's a battle for me to know my place. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. I am not the third person of the Trinity. I'm always going to be tempted to think it's about my strength, my my adequacy, my self-sufficiency. I'm strong. I've arrived. And then I forget who I am. Ministry can become my identity. Rather Rather than being a child of God in daily need of grace, I start to think I'm in a different category where I can equate doing for God with being with God. They're not the same. I can equate being gifted with being graced. They're not the same. My devotional life, our devotional life, this is mainly for the preacher, our devotional lives can be hijacked by sermon prep or teaching. It's a temptation to become a professional Christian where I'm just getting ready I'm always preparing my sermon because I'm excited to share it with you, but I'm not actually that excited about what God is doing in my heart. I'm not aiming first for my obedience. Where we want applause, we want glory. We like the feeling of teaching, but it's not actually transforming our own lives. Paul Tripp says in his book, Dangerous Calling, I am more and more convinced that what gives a ministry its motivations, perseverance, humility, joy, tenderness, passion, and grace is the devotional life of the one doing ministry. It's the Luke 10 plan. It's the Mary plan where I just sit at Jesus' feet to be with him, to hear his word. As a leader, like I said, it's very tempting for me to think I'm in a different category when it comes to my need for community. Who am I confessing to? Who's holding me accountable? I'm a fellow pilgrim on the journey, and I need loving support just as much, if not more, than any other church member. Ideally, that means that one day there will be things that I don't lead, but I get to go. I enjoy going to prayer meetings where I don't have to lead. We want to make sure our leaders are constantly being ministered to and not just constantly leading. That's going to be one of my biggest temptations is I'm constantly ministering to others, but who is ministering to me? Who am I listening to again? And any leader probably doesn't need to think more. We need to think differently. We probably think enough. 
But we need people who are going to think differently from ourselves, who will give godly counsel. That's part of having a humble attitude or watching over myself. I need to have godly friends. Individuals who will see me as one of them, not as a pastor, not in a different category. I need to have mentors. Again, people I'm listening to. And on a side note, on a quick side note, part of that is always having the accountability of a plurality of elders. The burden of leadership should never fall on one man, but the goal should always be to raise up a team of elders. The Bible never talks about a single ruler ruling or governing over the church. Acts 20, Philippians 1, 1 Timothy 4, 1 Peter 5, all assume a plurality, a group of elders. Because any leader needs to be willing to be held accountable by other leaders, to submit themselves to the authority of other leaders. And I'm thankful, and I trust God, and I see it, that God is already working at our church to prepare new elders and men to help lead our church. As leaders, we can easily forget that we're human. We can forget our creaturely finitude. We have weaknesses, vulnerabilities, and God-given limits. We need to sleep. We need to rest. That's part of watching ourselves. Oftentimes, I try to do more for God than my relationship with God can sustain. Eugene Peterson says, if you cannot afford to take one day off a week for rest, you are taking yourself too seriously. We need to see how much God gets done even when we rest. Jesus himself constantly moved back and forth from ministry and from activity and ministry to a desert place where he was alone with his father. We need weekly rest. Leaders, rest weekly. We, need to, we have times where we might need to rest over long periods of time. We need seasons of rest. Stop, rest, be refreshed, play, have fun, enjoy, contemplate, reflect, get away. Because the burdens of leadership can be so great and we're going to need significant times of refreshing, of refueling. That is to the benefit of our souls as well as to our, those that we lead, especially our families. And let's balance this out. Let's balance this out. Yes, absolutely, we don't want to encourage any member here to have a consumer mindset. If you're here, then you should serve. You should exercise your gifts for the good of the body. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 calls us to do. We want every member to serve and help us build the body. But don't feel guilty if you need to rest. If you need to be refreshed and refueled, take a Sabbath. Take time off to focus on the Lord. Let's not create some strong, macho culture where it's about like, look, look at me. Look how hard I'm working. Therefore, you need to work that hard. Don't compare your capacity to the capacity of others. We all have different God-given capacities of what we can handle. You're not superhuman. Know your limits, your boundaries. Don't try to do something God never intended you to do. There's only one Savior in the world, and it's not you. Christopher Ashe coins a term, sustainable sacrifice, which is a long-term self-giving where God enables us to give day after day, year after year. As leaders, we need to be refreshed by the word, by rest, by sleep, by godly friendships, by prayer. And it's not selfish to rest. It's humble. Just like it's not selfish for a firefighter to take a break before heading back into the fire, If you don't give yourself space for renewal and rest, soon there will be nothing left to give. I I had like five more pages on the leader's inner life, but I'm going to stop it there, okay? As hard as leadership is, it's very hard. You're a burden bearer, you're a suffering servant, you're a soldier for Christ. There are amazing privileges that come from the elder's chair that come from the leader's seat. For me, I have a very unique privilege at this church. I get to study God's word for a living. That was my favorite part, the thing I miss most. 
And I will do what I can, just so you know. I hope you don't get offended. I'm going to guard those times for my sake as well as for your sake. It's such an honor that I get to just be in the Bible all week, isn't it? As a pastor or a shepherd, my job, half of my job as a preacher-shepherd, as a pastor-teacher, is to preach the word. That means I have to study the Bible, be diligent to preach in season and out of season. It's hard, it's hard to be a week-to-week preacher, but it's an amazing honor. I missed that when I wasn't preaching weekly. God has called me to study his word, and it's my job to meet with him on a weekly basis through my prayer, my study, my meditation, my conversations. My job is to restore and renew my soul. Another privilege from the elders or overseer's chair is that joy, it's just the joy we get when we see people doing spiritually well in their faith. When we see people progressing. That's a big reason why a leader goes into leadership. It's to see people's lives changed by the word of God and the gospel and to walk in that truth. 3 John verse 3 through 4 says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There will always be discouragements that Satan sends our way as leaders, but God encourages us by the faithfulness of individual Christians and the love they express towards us. Acts 28 verse 15 says, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God, and he took courage. He was refreshed by just those that were doing well. 2 Timothy verse 1, verse 16 through 18, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. He was refreshed by this believer. And there will come seasons of dryness. There will come seasons of crisis. But there will be seasons of fruitfulness and faithfulness too. And God is faithful to give us glimpses of that and even show us in this life what he's achieved through our leadership. I'm thankful to see some of my former youth kids here. Thankful that you would still come to my church (laughs) after all my rookie mistakes. And I have some longevity with a group of you. I was your middle school pastor, your high school pastor, and your adult years pastor. I don't know. Your grown-up pastor. I don't know what to call it. And I get to look at some of your Facebook messages from 2010 when you call me PP, so young, so pure, so innocent. Now you're all mature and corrupt. (laughs) But I get to see you walking with the Lord, being baptized, following God during suffering. And that's extremely satisfying, and I'm proud of you. That gives me a lot of joy. You know, leadership is hard, and you know the reality of it is that leaders are going to make a lot of mistakes, and leaders will fail, not like disqualifying failure, hopefully, but common trips, stumbles, sometimes sinful, sometimes not wishing you had done something different, wishing you could go back and do that over. Those things are good if they drive you to the Lord. But they can also be instruments of Satan that cause you to fall into discouragement and even despair. You know, I realize I could preach the gospel to others, but can I preach the gospel to myself? I can be compassionate to others, but can I be compassionate to myself? My own failures. 
Can I let it free me from perfectionism and the ruthlessness of justification by works? Can I preach Romans 8.1 to myself and my own weaknesses? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or do I just condemn myself? One of the best ways anyone can handle themselves or one of the most important things you can do is learn how to handle your failures, your weaknesses, your flaws, your blemishes. Can I see myself as God sees me? You know, I could preach the gospel to this, this person and say, hey, you're saved by grace. But for me, it's like, I should have known better. I should have known better. Like, I, in my pride, I should have known that. I should have saw it coming. I should have prevented that. And I assigned to myself this godlike wisdom and knowledge. But if he is for me, who can be against me? If he does not condemn me, then I don't condemn myself even if others condemn me. That in my sin, in my weakness, in my failures, in your failures, God loves you. He is for you. A lot of leaders are so hard on themselves and understandably slow, understandably so. We should be hard on ourselves. But if you are so hard on yourself that you lose your joy in Christ, that is not repentance. That's just despair. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Look at how he feels like he hasn't arrived yet. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And John Piper, in speaking in relation to these verses and answering the question, am I too hard on myself, says the following, in my running the Christian race, the Christian life, I do not burden myself with the paralyzing effects of the memories of past failures, nor do I burden myself with the killer weight of pride at my past successes. Anything that would hinder my, hum, hinder, that would hinder my humble, loving, godly, holy race for the good of others and the glory of God, I forget it. I lay it aside. I don't let it produce sinful effects in my life. And leaders need to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, that we are not failing at failing. That our failures lead to a godly response. We can fail so badly that it produces a paralyzing fear or anxiety about everything. We can fall so short that we lose the capacity and the courage to attempt anything. And in our failing, we don't trust Christ for the ability to keep going. We lose all joy and hope in the Lord, and it only leads to fear, anxiety, and discouragement, and we can be crushed by our own stupidity. In these cases, defeat, failure, setbacks are messengers of Satan rather than instruments of God's grace. Suffering and weakness can ground us, humble us, prune us, teach us so that we can know him, know him more, but we can all go the other way as well where we don't know how to handle failure in our inadequacies, in our sufferings, in our flaws. We don't have the safety net in the gospel. You want to know how to handle failure and suffering? Let it break you. Let it break you of all pride and self-sufficiency. You know the type of leader I want to be and the only type of leader I want to see raised up in the church? It's the broken leader who trusts Christ. And those broken leaders who take responsibility to help others, they are the best instruments to help other broken people. We don't need charisma. We need a broken and contrite spirit that rejoices in their salvation. In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, after a successful mission trip from the disciples, Jesus says this to them, Nevertheless, 
Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so failure doesn't have to ruin us. Success won't make us big-headed. But whether it's your pride or your successes or your failures, we rejoice in our salvation. Pray, God, restore the joy of my salvation. That's the leader's ultimate joy. This is a fuel that will help us endure, that will keep us going when things are tough. Let me close with this. How can we become godly leaders? You don't become a godly leader overnight. You won't become a leader by making some dramatic New Year's resolution or some dramatic resolution overall. Instead, what we need as leaders is what one very godly leader, Eugene Peterson, described as a long obedience in the same direction. The giants of the faith... The heroes of the faith didn't become who they are by three or four giant steps. It was 10,000 steps in the right direction. 10,000 little moments of conviction. 10,000 moments of humble submission. 10,000 moments of confession. 10,000 moments of foolishness and mistakes and wisdom gained. 10,000 choices, little choices to be obedient to not give in to little temptations, to be precise, to be faithful with the little things. That's how Jesus rescues us. He renovates our heart one little section at a time in unremarkable moments to form us into men and women of character and wisdom and grace. It's a lifelong process of change, and he's building and rebuilding you. You need to commit to the long-term process, the day-by-day, the moment-by-moment, step-by-step process of confession, repentance, faith, and courage. Don't devalue the small moments of growth and change. And it's the ordinary Christians who week in, week out, they show up, They pray for others. They do the little things. They share the word. They encourage. They do it year by year without complaint, without any spotlight. They endure. They're faithful to the mundane. Those are the ones that God will use. I hope we never lose our simplicity as a church. We're never trying to do something fancy to create instant results, to create speed or numbers or anything like that. Instead, we should aspire to be ambitious as individuals and as a church to have a long and slow and faithful obedience in the same direction. To be good and faithful and enduring servants. Let me close with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, our labor, is not in vain. Let's pray. Take some time to reflect on your inner life. Whether you're a leader or not a leader, why were you impatient? Why did you get so anxious? Why are you so fearful? Why are you so passive? Is there bitterness? Is there anger? Watch yourself your life and your doctrine, your teaching, what you're teaching yourself, the conversation going on in your head. It's those little moments that will make or break you. Don't compromise in the little things. Ask the Lord's help. Cling to his grace, his saving and transforming grace.
He has not only forgiven us of our past sins, he has not only given us an eternity with him, the gospel can save you now from yourself. Don't fail that failing. Father, we, we, we do pray that you would raise up leaders and humble servants in our church. We pray for more overseers. We pray for more deacons, for DG leaders, for faithful shepherds, those that will lead their team with selflessness and humility and integrity. We do ask that. Help us as a leadership be discerning and wise in the laying on of hands but also to trust you, to take some risk, to see what you can do. But God, we always want to remember that you didn't first ask Peter to do more, but you asked him if he loves you. And we pray for our church, that we would always increase and progress and grow in our love with you. That our service would flow from the inside out. That we would be transformed by your new and grace. That we would, in view of your mercies, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice because we love you. God, we want to be humble instruments, godly instruments, honorable instruments in your hands. And so I pray, we pray as a church that you would use us. You would take our lives, use us for the good of others, to be humble and compassionate and courageous for your glory and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.